one of the cooler ideas that has ever been come up with or created for kids' books, I think, is the choose-your-own-adventure. Any of you read those as a kid? Any, any, let's see some hands. Come on. All right, there's some love out there for the choose-your-own-adventure. Well, the, the, the reason this is so cool is that in most books, it tells you everything that's going to happen, and you have no choice. But in the choose-your-own-adventure books, you read along until there's something scary or something dramatic, and then you get to choose your own adventure. So a classic example is um, the character is, has wandered into this old ramshackle house, and he's starting to think that maybe it's haunted, and it's scaring him, and he wants to get out of the house, and right then this huge bat comes down and lands next to him. And the bat says, I'll help you. Climb on my back. And then it says, if you choose to go with the bat, turn to page 26. If you choose to hide from the bat, turn to page 28. Choose your own adventure. All right. Now, life is a lot like those books. You and I are going along in the story of our lives, and something scary or dramatic happens in which we are threatened, hurt, or in some kind of danger, and we have to choose our own adventure. Maybe you, you formed a business with a friend, and now that friendship has soured, and that person is acting more like your enemy, and you realize that that person is actually now trying to push you out of this thing. Do you, do you choose to fight it with everything you've got? Turn to page 26. Or do you choose to negotiate the largest separation agreement you can get and just leave quietly? Turn to page 28. Choose your own adventure. Maybe your sister-in-law says to you some very unkind and hurtful things. Do you choose to call some other people in the family and tell them how badly she's treated you? Turn to page 26. Or maybe you say nothing, but at the next family gathering, you pretty much avoid her. Turn to page 28. Who is your enemy right now? Maybe you don't call them that, but the way the person's acting, they might as well be. Everybody's got one. G.K. Chesterton said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor, and it also tells us to love our enemy, because generally, they're the same people. <laughs> so I want you to picture that person in your mind, if you would. Now, how are you choosing to respond? There's two classic options. If you choose in some way to retaliate, turn to page 26. And if you choose in some way to retreat, turn to page 28. Now, when you follow the way of Jesus, what Jesus does is this. He says, yes, those are the two classic human options, but I give you a third option. I open up a different way to choose your own adventure to that person who has hurt you, who has wronged you, who is a threat to you, and who is your enemy. And that's what I want to look at this morning. But I have to warn you, when we look at this third option, when you hear it, you will think that's impossible. Let's look at it together. If you turn to Matthew 5, verse 44. Jesus says, I say, love your enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Doesn't that that sound impossible? It's like sprout wings, I say to you, sprout wings and fly. You know, that's what it feels like. Bertrand Russell, the atheist, said, well, there's really nothing wrong with the Christian sentiment of love your enemies. It's just, it's too hard for people to really do. Kierkegaard said, most people think this is like setting your clock ahead a half hour so you're not late as often. It's really a game. That's not the real time for the clock, but if it keeps you from being quite as late as you otherwise would be, then maybe it's worth something. But what I'm here to tell you, friends, is that this command of Jesus Christ is absolutely sober and serious. He means it. And it's not impossible. It has been tested by Christian after Christian after Christian, and it has been found to work. If you go to the Eddie Bauer store in Naperville and you're trying to pick out like some winter jacket or parka, a lot of the tags will have something like this. You open it up and you're going to spend a lot of money, so you're reading the tags, making sure this is the right jacket for you. And the parka will say something like, the fabric or the nanofill in this jacket was tested by the U.S. climbing team on the slopes of K2 in Everest. Implication, it's been tested under the harshest conditions that this planet can throw at this jacket, and if it held up there, it'll hold up in your suburban winter. Okay? And this command of Jesus Christ to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you has been tested in the harshest conditions, and it has been found to hold up. Three years ago, Keith and I flew to Jos, Nigeria, where, as most of you know, we have a a partnership with the Anglicans there. In Nigeria, over the last dozen years or so, thousands of Christians have died. And the week that we got there happened to be the week leading up to the national election, so the tension was at its height. And there had been, the Sunday we arrived, two attempted bombings at Anglican churches in the diocese. Thankfully, both were foiled and no Christians were killed. But we, we set, went to the, annu, uh, the, the weekly clergy meeting and got to sit in. And, and that was on everybody's mind. And several of the younger pastors there stood up and said, how long are we going to put up with this? How long are we going to take this? This is outrageous. They're bombing our churches. They're burning them to the ground. They're killing our people. And we just sit here and do nothing. When are we going to stand up and get them back? When are we going to take to them what they've done to us? And the older clergy there in the room listened, and then they said, it's not the way of Jesus. And because in Africa, age means something, age carried. And the younger pastors sat down. Recently, uh, Archbishop Ben was here for Bishop Stewart's consecration. We asked him how things are going. They're still tense. But what has happened, what would have happened if they had taken the position of those younger pastors that day? It's predictable, isn't it? The Christians would have gathered a young group of kind of impulsive youths and given them with machetes and whatever other weapons they had, and they would have gone across the line into the Muslim sector of the city and killed 20, 30, 50 people. And then the next week, the Muslims would have come across the line and killed 75 people. And then the Christians would have gone back across the line and killed 150 people. And then the Muslims would have come across the line and killed 400 people. And the escalation of violence would have caught everyone up in in, in an endless cycle of death. And the Christians would have become as evil or more evil than those who've been attacking them. 
And instead, the, the older clergy said, no, we're going to follow the way of Jesus. And we asked Ben about how it's going, and he said it's still very tense there. But let me tell you what's happened. We are now seen as the people of peace. When there's a regional settlement meeting, if there's a treaty negotiation meeting to try to calm the city down, there are Muslim leaders now who will say, we will not go to the meeting unless Archbishop Ben is there. He's seen as a man of peace. And in, in 2013, not a single bomb went off in Joss. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This has been tested in the harshest of conditions. And so it will work in your life too. If you're willing to stop saying, oh, that's impossible, that's, that's hyperbole, that's a rhetorical flourish, that's the way the, the rabbis talked back then, and you say, this is sober, serious, and exactly what Jesus is telling me to do. Now let's look at what Jesus says here in verse 43. He says to his people, and, and in the Sermon on the Mount here, he's been kind of correcting some misunderstandings people have about the way of God. And he says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor. That was in Leviticus 19, which you heard read by Jeremy this morning. It says, love your neighbor. Everybody knew that. But he says, and you've also heard, hate your enemy. Now, that's not actually in the Old Testament law, hate your enemy. But it was commonly understood and taught by many of the rabbis at that time. That's the necessary implication. If God's law says, love your neighbor, then it must imply, I therefore can hate my enemy. I'm called to do this, but I'm, I, I, I therefore can do this. Do you see that, how that goes together? And that's what was being taught. That was the widespread understanding in Jesus' day. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way of God. You want to read the way of God? Look, look, at, look at Exodus uh, 23, where it says, if you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that is straight away, don't go, too bad, so sad. Take it back to its owner. If it, you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, don't kick it as you walk by. Don't walk by. Instead, stop and help. Do you see that? Or Proverbs 25 says, if your enemies are hungry, don't go, serves them right. No, you give them food to eat. If they're thirsty, you give them water to drink. And so Jesus is saying the, the right way to interpret the law, love your neighbor, is that your neighbor includes even the person who's hurting you. That's who it includes. And Jesus says, here's how you, you know that that interpretation is right. All, he, he keeps coming back to the nature and the original intent of God the Father. And he says, think about how God acts. Verse 45, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven if you love your enemies, because here's how he handles things. He gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. When Hitler came to power in Nazi Germany, they didn't run out of sunshine those years. God has this tremendous capacity to send rain on the just and the unjust alike. And then Jesus actually challenges them. He says, look, if you love only those people who love you, I'm not impressed. Everybody does that. If you want to be like your Father in heaven, which is the true meaning of this, what I'm trying to teach you here, you love your neighbor, and that includes the person who's hurting you, your enemy. Because God shows love to mean people. And Jesus goes so far as to say, be perfect in verse 48. And, and the, the sense of that word is, be complete, be mature, be as completely loving and charitable toward people, no matter how they treat you, as your Father is. 
That's how he does it. That's how he treated you when you had no time for God. How did God treat you? With forgiveness and openness so that the moment you turned to him, he welcomed you in. And that's how he treats the person who's being terrible to you right now. Now, so you, 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 what this third option that Jesus has opened up is if you retaliate, turn to page 26. If you want to retreat, turn to page 28. If you want to re- respond like your father in heaven, turn to page 30 and the whole story changes. He brings out a third option. And this is not impossible because when you and I are born into the family of God, we have a father, we have a family resemblance to him, and we can't help ourselves. We want to look like him. When Karen and I moved into our first home, it, it had everything wrong with it. We said we would buy the first home that we could afford that had closet doors hanging on it, and we did. And so everything needed to be painted and torn out and whatever, and so we spent months doing that. And my son was 16 months old. And so what do you do with a 16-month-old in a construction site? So I, I, we, that was a real challenge for us because we had to do the work. Well, we finally figured out what to do. He wanted to be wherever I was and be doing exactly what I was doing. So we bought him, because he wanted work clothes like mine, so we bought him a little pair of green overalls, coveralls, you know, so he could kind of feel like, I've got Carhartt gear. <laughs> and I went and I found at Home Depot the smallest painter cap they had, and it was a little loose on him, but it actually fit okay. So I got him a little painter cap. So I'd fit him out with the overalls and the painter cap, and I'd go into the room that had to be redone, and I'd just put up the paint lights, and then he had to have something to do, so I'd give him a spackle knife. So he'd be trotting after me like this with this big spackle knife, and sometimes he'd gouge the wall, and I'd have to go over there and kind of, you know, <laughs> clean it up a little bit with some new spackle. But you see, he couldn't help himself. He wanted to be like his dad. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want for you. Be like the dad who loves people who are horrible. That's what I'm inviting you into. Now, I want to talk very pastorally and specifically and give you some counsel about this. Uh, Jesus says these two, two sentences in verse 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And I, I want to talk about how you and I can actually do that with that person you're thinking of right now this morning. Love your enemies. Let's start there. Then that immediately raised the question, how do I love when actually I feel anger? I feel hurt. I feel rage at this person. I feel hate. How am I supposed to love And one of the first things that you and I need to know is that when Jesus is talking about love, he's not talking about you're going to feel warm and fuzzy toward this person. Your emotions will not, most likely, be cooperating with you at all in this process. What he's saying is you are going to choose to somehow work for their betterment. That's what love is. And so, of course, you're going to be sometimes mentally rehearsing. How do I get back at that person? Oh, man, I just can't believe they do that to me. Of course you're going to be doing that. Sometimes you may think, well, I can't get back at them, but it wouldn't be bad if God did, if there was some sort of freak or cosmic accident that befell them. That wouldn't be so bad, would it? But but you, you, you can't choose that way. You have to choose the way of love. If you come to our newcomers class here, Bishop Stewart tells us some of the stories of our life as a church, and we're very honest here about some of the dark days we had in the later 90s. It was a very difficult time where uh, there were several splits, and to kind of condense what happened, it really was a kind of a group of people who were, were sort of labeling others and pushing them out of the church. So painful. And I remember in January of 1999, 
Karen and I gathered like four or five other couples and some singles in our, in our living room, and, and all of them had had that experience. And they were just devastated. And we went around the room, and this person told their story, and it was a nightmare. And this person told their story, and it was so similar and horrifying. And this person told this, and we went around. And as each story built, my anger just began to explode. I was like, this is outrageous. This has got to stop. This is the worst thing ever. And so at the end of that last person's story, uh, someone in the room said, well, what are we going to do? And I'm thinking we could drive by the houses of those people and take down their mailboxes. And William, the, the former senior pastor, paused and said, love will win out. And I remember very distinctly, I thought, well, yeah, yeah, that's nice. It's a very pious thought, but we're talking about some really serious stuff that's happened to people, and we've got to get back at them. And he said again, love will win out. And nobody wanted to seem totally unpious, so we let that carry. And so, <laughs> and now I look back 15 years later, And you know what I see? Every single person in that room has been reconciled to resurrection and the leaders of resurrection. There's been healing. There's been forgiveness. There's been repentance. There's been restorations that I thought I would never, ever see this side of heaven. And those words which seem so trite at the moment, love will win out, truer words have never been spoken. The way of Jesus is not impossible. If we'll humble ourselves, it works. Now, you're going to have to ask God to help you forgive. I've had a lot of conversations in prayer with God that started like this. God, I don't want to forgive that person, but I want to want to. I don't want to, but I want to want to. Would you give me the want to? Would you help change me? And some of you, maybe the reason why you haven't been able to forgive and kind of start to heal is because you've been, you haven't really defined the sin that was done to you. You've been sort of saying, oh, that's just the way it goes down in business. That's just the way it goes down in, in love relationships. Yeah, what should I expect? That's a family. And you haven't actually named the sin that was done against you that was wrong, it was evil, it was hurtful. It shouldn't have happened. And when you do, when you get clear about that, then you can start to really forgive it. And you can ask for God's power to help you forgive it, to want to forgive it. Now, this does raise a question, though, for us, which is, does this mean I have to put up with abuse? Some of you have had that question already, and I want to take it directly on. Does this mean this kind of charitable regard and working for the betterment of the person who hurts you, does it mean I have to roll over and be the doormat here? I have to play dead. I have to take the abuse. And the answer is no. It doesn't mean that. Jesus says in Luke 17, if your brother sins rebuke him. He doesn't say, oh, encourage him to do it again. Somehow codepend with him in a way that lets him just keep doing it. He says, rebuke him. He's calling for an inner strength here. He's not saying, and and Paul, he even says to the Corinthians, and he's just like reading them the riot act, he goes, why is it with you that when these other apostles show up, you put up with it when someone enslaves you, takes everything you have, takes advantage of you, takes control of everything, and slaps you in the face? And Paul's like, what? That's not the way Christians act either. Out of a strength they choose to love. That's not the same as permitting that abuse to continue. If you have any possible way to stop it, you should rebuke it and stop it. Now, before I leave this section of love your enemies, I want to pull out the word give in this passage. If you look at verse 40, do you see that Jesus says, if you're sued in court, your shirt's taken from you, give your coat? 
Verse 42, give to those who ask. Verse 45, God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And I want to ask this question. Is there a way that you could give something to the person who's hurt you? I was recently talking with a 20-something-year-old young lady, and she was telling me her story. She said she's been estranged from her brother for years. It's been a very tense relationship. They've never really gotten along. And, and earlier this year, uh, he, he said some really cruel things to her, things that I couldn't repeat here on a Sunday morning. And so the estrangement was the deepest it's maybe ever been. And she was trying to figure out, how do I respond to that? She didn't want to be around him at all. And she told me what she decided to do. She noticed one time that his shirt wasn't, was kind of old and ratty. She decided to go to Kohl's and buy two shirts that fit him. And she drove by his apartment and said, here you go. He's like, what are these? I went to Kohl's. I bought you a couple shirts. I thought you might want them. He's like, what am I, your charity case? She's like, no, I just wanted you to have them. Do you see at that moment, she's not acting like a human being anymore. She's acting like a divine being who's come down from heaven upon the earth. She's acting like a child of her heavenly father. She's acting exactly like God treats you and me. Is there a way you could give to that person? Now, second, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. How do you pray when you're hurt and enraged? How do you do that? I was talking with a woman who's, who, who told me she went to her spiritual director, and here's what she said. She said, here's the problem I'm having. When I sit down to pray, I think about that person. I can't stop thinking about them. And what wants to come out of my lips is you blankety-blank. What do I do? I can't even pray because all that wants to come out is you. And the spiritual director, I thought, told her something very wise. She said, pray the Kyrie, which is an ancient Christian prayer. It says, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. So when you sit down and you want to go, you, you, you instead go, Lord, have mercy. And you start to repeat that. You start to pray that. And suddenly, you're asking for mercy for this situation. You're asking for mercy for yourself because you're so wounded, but you start to inexorably move to you're asking for mercy for this person who did this. That's how you pray for someone who hurts you. I asked a guy this week, he'd been very unfairly fired. I said, how are you praying for the people who did that to you? He said, here's my request. Opened eyes, opened eyes. Because he thinks it was wrong, right? Maturity and healing. That's my three requests for the people who did this to me. I love that. Because I think when you're praying for the person who's hurt you, the, the, the double check that you need is, would I want somebody to be praying that for me? And, and make sure that the request is something that you would want prayed for you. And I thought, opened eyes, maturity, healing, those are requests I would want. I would want somebody to be praying for me. Absolutely, and especially if I had in my blindness and sin hurt somebody in that way. My experience, I pray a lot, bless the person. I just said, say, bless them. And when I do that, this person who goes from becoming, being a monster, something transforms through the prayer, and usually it takes a while, 
it, they actually become, instead of a monster, they become a person who did a monstrous thing. And I realize, you know what? They're hurting too. They, they're, they're, they're hurting me because they're hurting inside. And gosh, they're actually not that different from me. You know what? I've done things that honestly are kind of in the same plane. And, and it changes the way I feel about them. Friends, the impossible becomes possible when you and I will obey Jesus Christ and we will pray for those who persecute us. I was talking with a woman recently. She had a, a, a situation where a, a former friend became an enemy. And there was a lot of estrangement. They didn't even see each other anymore. And it was so, so distressing. So she sent her a note and said, really, I, I would love to work on this. And, and got no response. Months went by, she wrote another note, couldn't let it go, and said, please, we've been friends. Could Could we work this out? Nothing. Sent a third note. Finally was like, nothing's gonna happen. I've done everything that I can, it's not gonna work out. And it was coming up Lent, like we're 10 days from Lent. And she's, here's what she said. She said, you know what, God? Every time I'm sitting at a stoplight during Lent, I'm gonna pray for reconciliation. So that's what she did pull up to a light instead of going, when's this stupid light going to change? She'd go, Lord, reconciliation. You know I just want reconciliation. Do you know that in the two years since that Lenten season, they've had their first conversation, and the person actually sent a small gift in the mail as a way to try to start the reaching back? It's not all the way back, but there's a thawing that's happening. There's a healing that's happening. The impossible becomes possible when we obey Jesus Christ. I was talking with a friend of mine who'd been deeply wounded by somebody who betrayed him. And I said to him, how are you praying about it? And he said, well, it's very interesting. Early in my process with this, I was praying about it, and here's the picture that came to my mind. I was standing in heaven, and I was having a meeting there in heaven with the people who had wounded me. And he said, when I, but, but in, in, the, in the mind's eye, what, what, what was interesting about it was we were good. I felt okay. We were actually good with each other. In fact, we were more than good. That picture is the will of your Father in heaven. And Jesus taught us to pray, may your will be done. May your kingdom come just as it is in heaven. Bring that down to earth. The will of God starts to come down to earth and be seen in our lives when we follow Jesus and obey what sounds impossible to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Amen.